Okay, well, I, I want to start. So this is a, a very special episode of The Arc Party. Usually my format is I read a book that's coming out. I talk to the author about the book, and then we encourage you to go get it ahead of time. That format's out the window this time because um, what we decided to do as huge fans of Stephen Graham Jones is in the lead up to The Angel of Indian Lake, we are doing deep dive episodes of all three books. So this is the deep dive episode for My Heart is a Chainsaw. And um, I'm going to say all right, right up front, this is a conversation for people who have read the book. Like we are not going to hold back what we talk about. We're not going to worry about spoilers. Um, we're going to dig into it. We're going to dive deep into it and um, probably nerd out about Jones stuff too a little bit. Um, but that's the format of this episode. I'm very excited. I haven't done a deep dive before. Um, I asked two very special people to be guests to do this deep dive with me. And uh, we're just going to introduce ourselves really quick. Um, you know that I'm Rob. I'm the, the host of, of The Arc Party. And I got started reading Stephen Graham Jones because I used to host a podcast called Booked. And um, at the beginning of starting that podcast, we were really tied into a group of people that were connected to a website called The Velvet. And The Velvet was a website supporting three authors, Willow Christopher Bear, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. So I was already tight with a bunch of people who were fans of, of Stephen Graham Jones. And um, basically, the first time he had a new book come out, when my podcast was going, we reviewed it. I realized this dude's a genius. And that was all she wrote. I think the first book that we reviewed was... Zombie Bake Off. So that's, I want to say 2012. And uh, there's so much genius in that book. That's one of those books where like people are like, where should I start? And selfishly, I'm like, that's where I started. And look where I am now. So I don't see why anybody else should do anything different. So Zombie Bake Off is fantastic. And I think everybody should read it. Um, but since then, I've, I've read, I think, everything he's released since that point. And I've gone back and read earlier stuff too. Uh, so that's kind of like the launch point of my fandom. Um, I'm going to ask each of my guests to quickly introduce themselves and, and kind of talk about their origin of reading Stephen before we uh, get into the book. So let's start with Greg. Hey, everyone. I'm Greg Green. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, a uh, longtime Nashville resident. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Stephen Graham Jones uh, and, and a number of other horror authors. Uh, of course, Jones is, uh, is known probably best for his horror work. It's certainly certainly not limited to that genre uh, or to genre fiction uh, uh, in particular. But I'd say um, probably this has been about 2018 or so. Um, I uh, was interested in the contemporary horror fiction scene. And so I I saw a uh, an audio book called The Best of the Best Horror of the Year, of course, from uh, Ellen Datlow, the master um, anthologist and editor who's brought more horror to more readers than probably anyone alive. And, and this has um, a story called Chapter Six by Stephen Graham Jones. It's probably the first time I, I really read one of his stories. And then after that, um, I was taking a long drive through Wyoming in, this has been 2020, with my son, Aussie, and I brought along this book called uh, The Only Good Indians, which I was hearing a lot about. 
And, uh, and you know, I, I was familiar with Stephen's work a little bit at that point. That was really the, the first full book of his that I read. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed driving across that that uh, the whole state of Wyoming. We drove like eighteen hundred miles in about six days, and um, and it was really interesting to. To about day five or so, we were in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And if you've ever been to Jackson Hole, there is a, a park downtown and it has four enormous columns full of um, elk antlers. And oh, so yeah. I got a picture of, of the, uh, <laughs> the Only Good Indians book on one of those uh, antler columns, dried bone white antlers, and then kind of did some sort of a kind of spiral back uh, and made it look kind of like, you know, like, like the title credits for a lost or something. Um, and then put that on uh, out on Twitter and Steven saw it and, and just kind of remarked favorably toward that. So uh, that was really kind of how I first started to follow Steven's work and, and also get to know him uh, really was over Twitter. Uh, but now I've, um, I'm a completely rabid, crazy Stephen Graham Jones fan. I've got it, all of his books. I, I've read about half of them. It's taken some time to get through, but I'm also really yeah. into tracking down the individual stories. He's got scores, at least scores, maybe hundreds of short stories that are not in any collection that he's been publishing since 94, 95. Um, so uh, kind of getting all of that, doing a hundred percent read of all's fiction is, is one of my, my bucket list goals. And, uh, I'm I'm on on the way, but there's there's a lot there's a lot to get through. <laughs> um, and if I remember correctly, uh, and, and Jesse can back me up on this, I believe the way that you came onto my radar originally was um, I saw on Twitter one day. I'm like, there's this guy who's asking about Stephen Graham Jones stuff, and and the way that I saw it was that Jones had replied and said, "Oh, Jesse probably knows more than anybody else." Yeah. And then me and Jesse were like, oh, there's this dude who's who's looking for information. And like, so I think we both replied. And um, so, uh, yeah, like that, I, I believe that was you. I, I'm, and, I, certainly we had that interaction. He said um, probably uh, Jesse has read more of my stuff than, than just about anybody. And that's how yeah. I came to know who Jesse was. Yeah. And so that was the first time like you came onto my radar yeah. and then I kind of like forgot about it, but then, um, you just kept your, 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 your presence as a fan of Steven grew and grew to the point where I was like, Oh, he's the Steven fan. So, um, yeah, that's my perception of you. Like it started out with this like very polite curiosity and then it just, you know, it, it grew Went full blown obsessive. Yep. That's how I roll. That's how I roll. Well, it's, it's an honor to be thought of as, as someone who is a huge fan of Stephen's work. And I, I certainly want to pro help proliferate it because people need to read these stories. It yeah. will help people be better people if they read uh, his stories, including his, some of his really, really dark horror stories. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I, I love to advocate for artists whose work moves me. And and uh, and no one has more than Stevens. Absolutely, um, yeah. That's that's one of those things where it's like there are authors that I'm more quick to respond when someone's like, "Hey, how? What? What about?" And there was a teacher uh, that had said like, "Hey, what can um, what can I have my students read of Stephen Graham Jones at one point?" And I do I dove on that one, and I was like, "What about?" So yeah, those questions I'm like pretty quick to answer, but probably looping in Jesse too because he knows way more than me. And that's a great way to segue to Jesse. Um, what, uh, first of all, you can introduce yourself and just say like, how did you get started 
reading Stephen's stuff and becoming a fan of his work. I'm Jesse Lawrence. Um, and it's weird, this, uh, the trajectory or the beginning or whatever, you know, the discovery. Um, I remember chatting online with Billy J. Stratton, who is also a fantastic author himself, writes a lot of great stuff, big fan of Stephen, knows Stephen as well. Made that book happen, absolutely, <laughs> which is great. And him and I have a similar, like a similar path. And I'm kind of blanking on what I th- feel like both of us were blanking on what our firsts were, but it wasn't right with Fast Red Road. It wasn't right at directly at the beginning. So, Rob, you mentioned the Velvet, which I was a part of. Um, and it's weird because at that time they were um, Dennis Widmire was sending arcs of will christopher bears hell's half acre Mm -hmm. to the first five people who signed up on the velvet oh cool! (laughs) and and i got one of those um wow so i i knew will christopher bears stuff from the beginning i had it was one of those really just random things where i happened upon kiss me judas in a bookstore and it was like holy shit (laughs) you know so i i knew that stuff and i knew craig clevenger because the the connection all there when that was all first coming out. But with Stephen Graham Jones, Drew McCoy, who is also a member of the Velvet and also a fantastic writer himself, he's the one who introduced me to Stephen Graham Jones um, through, you know, email and private messaging and whatnot. But he was also talking about him on the, the message board. And I believe Drew McCoy and I feel so bad that I'm remembering the other name possibly two if there were two other people involved. But Drew McCoy was one of the people who created Steven's first website. It was called wow. Blue Monkey Land. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was on that. And they were weekly um, posting stories, uh, short stories. And that was my first exposure to Meat Tree, which is still, to this day, one of my favorites of his shorter short story stories that he's got out there. Um, so yeah, Drew McCoy was the one who kind of hipped me to Stephen Graham Jones, which kind of makes me think, I think, I believe it was all the beautiful sinners was the first one I read. And then after that, I read bird is gone and then fast red road. And then from that moment on, I was along the path with it, um, for everything that came thereafter. And Man, what a ride. Seriously. What a, what a ride. What a ride. Yeah. Seriously. What a ride. And it's, it's funny. Uh, you, it's, it's not that you have to be a horror fan to enjoy his stuff or a science fiction fan or kind of a, a crime thriller fan. Uh, you, you just become, it doesn't matter what's, what genre he's writing in. You, you quickly become a Stephen Graham Jones fan. Um, he, he is his own genre. I mean, every, every author really ultimately is, but Stephen really, I mean, you can find so many of the, the same concerns in his stories across multiple genres. There's a, um, I don't know, a, a, a grittiness and an authenticity to his writing that is just unlike any, it's, it's, just, it's a signature style. Um, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Well, Absolutely. And, then, and I think, um, I think Stephen is the, like you, like you said, everyone writes in their own genre, but I feel like Stephen is completely cemented in that same, like same mold as Lansdale, where he's yes. always said, "I write the Joe R. Lansdale genre." I yeah. think Stephen writes the Stephen Graham Jones genre. 
Stephen Stephen told me about being um, in, and I asked him about his his relationship with Joe Lansdale as a a friend and and really as a mentor. Um, and Stephen was saying, yeah, like he remembered seeing Joe Lansdale in a panel um, many many years ago, and someone said, uh, Mr. Lansdale, what genre do you you know what genre do you write in? And he said, I write in the Joe R. Lansdale genre. Next question, move on. And and Stephen <laughs> yeah. said immediately, like that's what I want to do. I want to write just, it doesn't matter what genre or what the market demands are, whatever. He wants to write the stories that interest him. And it's, he's, he's done it. Um, you know, and if he's writing, you know, you have literary fiction and then you got genre fiction when it doesn't matter if he's writing genre, it's, it's literary. He's really just kind of breaks down those, um, I guess, false dichotomies. Yeah. Uh, and just like on a, on the level of a person, um, because like, obviously there's his writing, but then there's him as a person. And, um, I, I think about, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but, um, we were having tacos with him one day in, um, where were we? Was that in Minnesota or was that in, where were we? That had to be Minnesota, Jesse. I don't recall tacos in Minnesota. I remember going to that, <sighs> that, um, that steakhouse or it wasn't a steakhouse but it was oh no yeah yeah it was it was the meat and whiskey no i'm talking about a different time maybe it was seattle we were somewhere and we had lunch with him and uh and i won't tell the whole story but he was just telling this totally innocent story about like having too many t-shirts and trying to make room in his closet and it was just like the most endearing like (laughs) like dumbass story but i was like i love this guy i could listen to this guy talk about anything all day but Mm -hmm. um one thing that I've always liked about him as a person and then been lucky enough to interview him many times is it is so obvious. And even in, in his writing, it's so obvious that he is a fan of the stuff. Like he, like, like in the acknowledgement of this book, um, you know, so thankful for the movies that he was watching as a kid. And that's like where this comes from. You can tell that like, he is enthusiastic about the genre of horror. He's enthusiastic about good writing and, um, like that's the kind of person that I want to support really. So um, on a personal level, aside from being a fucking brilliant writer, he's a very good person. So he's also, I I feel like he's probably about 10 different people squeezing (laughs) a single person's lifetime because the sheer amount, every time I listen to him on an interview on a podcast, I hear some other incident of him surviving a wild animal attack or some yeah, like oh, yeah. he told one on the king cast the other day about how he got poisoned with uh, by a rattlesnake after the snake was dead and he didn't eat it didn't even touch him and he still got poisoned by it it's it's unbelievable the yeah. sheer number of anecdotes the man has i think he's probably multiple people squeezed into one lifetime well, even his like writer origin story takes place in a hospital, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It does. It does. Um, all right. Before we get into the book, we we're, we just need to like when when uh, we have this kind of gathering, we need to geek out a little bit. Um, and I'll acknowledge, like, you guys have worked hard over the years to like gather fun things and trophies and like moments and experiences, and so like. When else are we going to have an opportunity to talk about this shit all in one place? So um, one thing I'll note about Jesse is that uh, Jesse 
is beyond Jesse's the kind of guy who will like pre-order and then forget that he already pre-ordered and that he already pre-ordered. And so like suddenly he'll have three copies of stuff. That's how I have a copy of, I think that's States of Grace over there uh, is because Jesse had so many copies. He could actually probably half of my collection of Stephen Graham Jones books, if not more is stuff where Jesse's like, I saw a picture of your shelf. You're missing stuff. And he just sent me a box of things. So, um, He's been a, an a avid collector of many authors over the years, and I've benefited from that greatly. Um, so, like, yeah, what kind of prizes? What are what are our prizes? What are our things that we're proud to have uh, from Stephen? I, I mean, Greg's got what has to be the rarest item yeah. related to Stephen Graham Jones. Greg, you want to you want to bust that out onto the camera? Is this uh, is this is this the item you're talking about right here? It is, and your hunting that down is massively impressive. I never thought I would even see a picture of it in a person's hands. Like, yeah, that for, that is incredible. So, for so our audio they, listeners, yes, Th- this is a a journal called Mind Purge, and it was published, um, I believe, out of or in association with the University of North Texas in like winter ninety four ninety five. I believe it was. Um, and this contains Stephen's uh, very first published story. Uh, it's called The Parrot Man, published under the name Stephen Jones. Um, I was aware of this, uh, had actually seen a copy of this before, uh, and um, I really thought, man, if I could ever have my own copy of this for my collection, wouldn't that be a thrill? So I, I found the fiction editor of this journal, and and looked up her name on Twitter, and sure enough, there's someone kind of matching that name. Oh, who's in North Texas? And I'm like, hey, DM'd her. Hey, like, is it any chance were you the editor of Mind Purge? And I'm I would love to have a copy of this, and don't know where I'd get it. And she's like, yeah, yeah, wow, it's so great to to know people are still kind of looking for this journal, and and uh, I I have one spare copy. I'm like, I will pay for it. No, no, I'll give it to you. Uh, can I pay postage? No, no, I'll, I'll pay postage. And then she DM'd me back a few minutes later saying, wait a second, Stephen Jones. Is that Stephen Graham Jones? And I said, you know, he was planning. He thought he was just going to be a farmer growing up in, in Midland, Texas. And you published his first story and maybe, maybe sent him on a path toward um you know, being a, a world famous writer. Uh, and she was so delighted to know that she had kind of made some difference in, 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 in that. Uh, anyway, she sent me this and, and he, I will say about the story, the parrot man, he came out of the, came out of the corner swinging. It's a, um, it's a strong story. It's a really strong story. I'm just c- completely delighted to have this. And so, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's mind purge containing the story, parrot, the parrot man. That's fantastic. That is really cool. Love it. I was showing I was showing off one of my uh, my uh, favorite uh, pieces of my collection. I don't consider my my collection to be particularly uh, special in any way, but by an absolute fluke of luck, um, I have one of the rarest uh, Stephen Graham Jones publications that's signed and numbered, um, and it is the Elvis Room. Yes. Uh, published by uh, This Is Horror, and I happen to have copy number one of 100. Only so 100 copies in existence. And people yeah. who want to complete their Stephen Graham Jones collections, then that's, that is one of the key pieces, and it is really, really hard to find. Yeah. So, uh, at oh, apologies for the thumbs up. That's an Apple thing. Um, 
I got it. I ordered it when it was released because I really enjoyed the This Is Horror chapbook series that they put out. Like they put out Nathan Ballingrid's, um The Visible Filth the before, Phil. it was, yes. before it was right. Wounds. Um, yep. There was some really good stuff. Ray, Ray Cooley's Water for Drowning was really good. Josh Mellerman, A House at the Bottom of a Lake. Wow. Like that was originally a This Is Horror one. So they did awesome stuff and I just really liked them and I wanted to support them. So I ordered that. Got number one. It wow. didn't ask for it. Didn't didn't you know do anything? It didn't slip anybody like a five pound note or anything. It just that's what showed up. So <laughs> no Finsky there. Didn't even right. realize it until years later. I was like just looking through my stuff one day and I was like, "Is that number one?" Wow. So yeah, very cool. Very excited about that. So cool. So cool. Jesse, how about you? What a, what a, a, a really cool piece in your collection. Man, I wish I, I wish I had the props to throw up on camera here. I've got so much stuff still just in boxes because I feel like I'm forever moving constantly, <laughs> you know, doing the apartment shuffle or whatever, you know. But um, I feel like I have a – it's not a complete co- collection, but it's near complete. Um, I have most of what has been published. Um, in one form or another. So including a lot of foreign editions, which, you know, obviously I can't read those like themselves, those copies, but you know, I just, I like, I like collecting books. I've always liked collecting books. And a lot of those foreign editions too have really awesome artwork for the covers. Yeah. Um, the the Carfax, so, uh, La Biblioteca del Carfax. I think I'm probably butchering the the, the name, but uh, it's a publisher in Spain that does the Spanish language editions. And oh man, the covers are beautiful. Love them. Those those are great. They have amazing covers, and the the German Cemetery Dance, a limited yeah, editions yeah. that have been coming out. Awesome artwork all around too. Um, so yeah, I just I just like collecting books, and you know the I like the art and all the effort that goes into those books. Um, it's kind of like, I've got a handful of film posters that are foreign too, just because they just look so cool. I'm like, I just, I just like this piece of art for what it is. So, you know, throw that up. Yeah. Yeah. I I have to imagine Jesse, that a, a lot of your like secret treasures aren't even on the bookshelf. They might be in your email inbox. I have to imagine that like your, real treasure is like stuff that you've been sent as like early versions of stuff over the years. I mean, I'm just forever, forever grateful and honored and lucky and anything else relative. You could say work like language wise to have gotten to read the things I've gotten to read from Steven. It's I, I'm like, I don't even know what to say. Like it's, I'm just, yeah. Like, hmm forever mind blown, honored and grateful and, and whatnot. I mean, I've gotten to read some really, really cool stuff. And even if, even if they never get published and sometimes there's things, you know, where, you know, he'll even say, yeah, I was doing this and it wasn't working. So I just moved on, you know, it's like, even those stories that aren't working, I find so many amazing things within them. It's, yeah. it's even beyond the thought that even like even a really bad horror movie has a cool thing in it. Like you might be watching the worst movie in the world, but it's got a werewolf in it. And that's really, really cool. So, yeah, even the things that just kind of don't pan out, there's there's gold in there for sure. And 
Yeah. I think this is Jesse's way of saying without saying that he's read American Neanderthal. (laughs) (laughs) I have read that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I have. Yeah, see, that's that's yeah. the treasure. That's the treasure. But you have a you've you've had a long time relationship with Stephen, where he's trusted you to be an early reader, and like he trusts your your input and stuff like that. So that's really cool. All right, I'm going to pivot us in the direction of this of the um, book. Um, so uh, and 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 an illustration of uh, I think Stephen and your relationship is that um, he put you in the acknowledgments for My Heart Is a Chainsaw. Um, when he was talking about how, you know, how he'd written the book and torn it apart, rewritten it, torn it apart, rewritten it. And he was thanking people who were readers and, and for their advice and their input. And he thanks you by name. And he says that you've probably read several versions of, of the book before it became what it was. So um, that's fantastic. I've always loved the the relationship that you and Stephen have, because it's obvious that there's a lot of, res- I call, I call you Stephen's little brother because <laughs> That's that's totally the the kind of uh, relationship that I, I see when I when I look at you guys, um, Greg. Where you come into specifically being tied into this book or this series is written all over your chest, buddy. So it is, it it is, and and it's it's been such a blast to um, to produce and distribute the Jay Daniels is my final girl T shirts. Uh, because people are wearing, they wear them to live events. Stephen will wear them uh, at public events. And and I, I just, the thought of helping to enrich the reading experience just a little bit uh, and helping people feel like a little more connected to Stephen and to this character who's really taken root in a lot of hearts uh, has just been so, uh, so much fun. There's probably 225 or so of these shirts out in the world as, as far away as, I, I guess, uh, England and uh, Sweden, I believe. Um, or the Netherlands, I think it is. Um, and that's just been a blast to do that. And it, it started because one day, um, I, after I'd read My Heart is a Chainsaw, this had been uh, September uh, 2022, I tweeted, I need a Jay Daniels is my final girl t-shirt. And I think Stephen replied something like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd buy that or I'd, I'd love to see that. So yeah. I, I reached out to him and said, hey, would you mind? If I uh, worked with a, a design friend of mine who's done merch for uh, Kiss and Aerosmith and Poison, his <laughs> designs <laughs> are on Budweiser beer cans and stuff, and uh, Harley Davidson and stuff. He's like a really, really talented designer. You know, I bet we could produce something really cool to represent Jay Daniels on a T-shirt. Uh, and Stephen said, go for it. And uh, so I worked with my designer, sent the designs to Stephen, got his approval on it. And he just kind of let me run with it. And uh, and so yeah, I've set up uh, set up the shop uh, about about this time last year, jadeshirt.com, and uh, and there's still shirts available if, if anyone wants them. And uh, there are a lot of knockoffs out there. Uh, he Stephen sent me a um, a photo, a screenshot of all the knock the play uh, like like the first Google screen search results of all these places that are knockoffs of of the original shirt, and it was it's just amazing how many pirate sites come up immediately well i can tell you i can guarantee you this they are not going to have this really nice material from next level apparel they will not feel good and they're not going to look as good either uh so definitely get yours from jadeshirt.com and uh yeah it's just it's great to see people just you know it, it, it just dig into this character and show their love for it and my real hope is people wear this shirt around 
And someone's going to say, well, Jay Daniels, who's that? And I've certainly had that opportunity. Or I've met people who who have read Stephen Graham Jones's work at a horror film festival or something. And we strike up a conversation, become friends over it. It's just a little way, to, again, to help enrich the reading experience. But what, a, what an honor to be able to, just for Stephen to allow me to uh, help distribute these shirts. It's, it's been a real, uh, a real blast for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I think that uh, one of your tweets, I think it's a pinned one, uh, maybe on Twitter, where uh, one of the photos that you have as an example of people wearing it is me and Jesse and Becky Spradford. Becky Spradford, yes. Were, yeah, uh, in um, Chicago when uh, for Stephen's, I think it was the launch day event. Like it was the event for Don't Fear the Reaper. I think yeah. it was the day that the book came out. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's right. It was very early in that. And I think that was like the first photo I saw of the shirt out in public was the three of you. And you guys, you all look so, you're all so beautiful and you look so smart, <laughs> you know, and you look like you're like really intelligent people having a great time. And it was, that was just perfect. Like who needs better marketing than that? So I've made good use of that photo. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'll I'll forever love Becky, and I will acknowledge she said this in um, my last episode of the podcast, and we did our like twenty twenty four horror preview because um, she talked about the Angel of Indian Lake, and her special thing was that she finished reading the Angel of Indian Lake on the day that the book ends. Like she actually read the finishing parts of the story on the day that that story concludes, and nobody else can say that because it hasn't been released yet. So right. she has a very special connection to that book. I thought was really cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, I remember Stephen saying something about completing edits, like the final set of edits before it goes off to the printer on the day that the story within the angel yep. Indian Lake ends. And he just felt that that was, it was very fitting. So, yeah, yep. uh, yeah the, you know, like- this, this trilogy has meant something very special to a lot of people, I asked him one time, like, how many people have read, um, uh, I think my heart is a chainsaw. And he's, you know, he, he didn't have exact figures, but he figures it's 10, it's, it's tens of thousands of people yeah. have read it. I and mean, that's a, it's really, it's a lot of people for something so um, intense and passionate and powerful to be part of their, you know, part of their consciousness um, yeah. and that distributed consciousness of, of horror readers. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very powerful and special. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into, um, I think we're going to kind of start out that way, but, um, now, so we're going to dive into talking about my heart is a chainsaw specifically. We're going to do our deep dive and I'm going to preface this by saying that we could spend hours and days and weeks talking about this story. We don't have that kind of time. Um, we're going to do our best to cover the things that we think are the most important or the most interesting, but I want to start out because I, I, I don't think that we should read maybe like the synopsis or something, but I thought it would be interesting if we all went around and said how we pitch the book to people when we're recommending it. So like, what is your quick pitch of what my heart is a chainsaw? The story is, uh, let's do Jesse first. Oh man, on the spot. Um, I am so bad at being succinct and pitching. (laughs) It is just, it's not possible. I mean, to me, it's, it's a slasher novel about a traumatized person who doesn't even doesn't believe in themselves and craves, you know, craves justice more or less or a better world, but they've been so 
beaten down and broken by their environment that they've lost they've lost faith in themselves and and I'm like already like you know ellipsis out there (laughs) like I can't I can't go on from there I mean it is it is a slasher I will say that it's a slasher but I think it's more than that I feel like this book is it's like an everything everywhere all at once of slashers it is a slasher (laughs) It's it's a deconstruction of slashers and it's an evolution of slashers it is yeah all parts Altogether, and yeah, I've just never been really good at summarizing. <laughs> you know, I kind of want to just slap that book in someone's hands and be like, "Do you like horror? Read this." Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me give you my elevator pitch version of this. I think I've got it down pretty well. So there's the so my heart is a chainsaw. Oh, you haven't read this book? Oh my gosh! I you, you know what? I bet you'd love it. So it's about this girl named Jade Daniels, and she's like. The town outcast, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't, she's not popular. She doesn't have a lot of money. You know, she's from a broken, broken home. um, And she is obsessed with slasher films. Um, So much so that it it kind of sets her apart. She kind of sticks out like a sore thumb around everyone else. But then in this little town in in Idaho where she lives, um, people start dying. And it looks like there might be a slasher on the loose. And because she's such a fan of the genre, she's the only person in town who knows how to deal with a slasher. So she starts trying to move the pieces in place to get the final girl up to, to, you know, to have this confrontation with the slasher, whoever the slasher might be. She's the only person who's really in a position to deal with the emergency and potentially save the town, save lives in town. Uh, But, you know, it's really a story about an outcast and, and her... Um, you know, trying to come to terms with who she is and, and her her own um, brokenness. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I how I try to pitch it. Hell yeah! Now I know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and mine is is way quicker because um, I, I don't get into the so like usually what what I say is um, there the main character is a girl who's obsessed with slasher stories like movies and stuff. And um, because of her knowledge of that, that type of movie, she noticed that things that are happening in her town really line up with what kind of the beats of a slasher movie are. And so now she's got to try and like warn everybody this is what's going on because they need, you know, they, they, they need to know. And she's kind of like the, uh, the scientist in a disaster movie where like no one, she knows exactly what's going to happen and no one believes her. Yep. Um, and so like, it's her struggle with, catching up with and, and uh, dealing with what's about to go down. I don't get into like the emotional motivation side of things. Um, but if pushed or if I'm seeing someone's on the fence about it, I'll be like, and really what it is is like X, Y, Z. But yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of my quick pitch is like, is that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, um, I had another thought and it vanished from my head. So it'll, it'll circle back around and it'll come back to me. But um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we have kind of a, a basic um, outline of things to talk about. Um, and and I think because of, of our pitches and how it has to do with like slasher stories and stuff, Jesse, I think said it, that it is a slasher. Um, my first talking point is, does this book follow the story sl- structure of a slasher? Does it deviate from the structure? Does it evolve the structure? How much, uh, how meta is it about the idea of a slasher uh, and being a slasher itself? 
I'd say it's it's certainly very meta in that there is a, a parallel narrative going on, which is a, a set of papers that Jade, the protagonist of the of the main narrative, has been writing, and you see the, her papers kind of trying to introduce her her teacher to the idea of the slasher genre, the slasher film genre, uh, what it means, what its rules are, what you know, what motivates various characters, what you're likely to see within slasher films. So it's definitely meta about it, and and that parallel structure, I think, is just one of the things that makes the novel so very special uh, because it's it's just it's it's like kind of a set of footnotes come alive live. And it, it really, and as that parallel structure evolves in the next two books, uh, without saying a whole lot, of, I don't want to do any spoilers for the next two books <laughs> in the series, but you do have that kind of parallel narrative going on and it and it becomes an intrinsic part of, of the trilogy. Uh, and again, just one of the things that sets it aside and makes it really special. But I, I would say, is the novel a slasher? Man, I, you know, I don't have all the slasher rules memorized, <laughs> but I'm really trying to get familiar with it, especially from the perspective of the films, uh, which is what the you know Jade's interest is in is in the films. And I'd say it does certainly follow the slasher structure in many ways. For example, she notices that when she finds one of these two uh, 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 Scandinavian kids dead then you know she knows the blood what is it the blood sacrifice has happened and that initiates the slasher cycle so she recognizes within her own story yep hey that's a sign that maybe the slasher cycle has begun but it definitely deviates by especially by the end in in this one crucial part and this is really pulling from kind of that that core of horror slashers if you, you you think like halloween is probably like that first really uh, completely firm example like that's that's sort of the quintessential slasher not the first slasher but the the, the earliest quintessential one um in that there's a there's a final girl and she's trying to position the final girl and, and she's the protagonist of the story but she knows she's not the final girl uh, and or and of course, we as readers are saying, well, but isn't she? Isn't she the final girl? So that's really a, a, a point where it very intentionally deviates from the slasher uh, genre in that the final girl is not the last, who Jade thinks is the final girl, Letha, is not the last girl standing. As far as she knows, Letha, at one point, she thinks Letha's dead. Uh, and, and she knows she can't be the final girl, girl for various reasons that we can go into Um in this conversation. But I think the, the fact that it deviates from the quintessential slasher is what, honestly, what makes the, the character of Jay Daniel so very powerful and what makes this story so powerful. What do you think, Jesse? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, like I said earlier, I was, I, I think this book is kind of, all of the above as far as slasher slashers go. Um, and that evolution is hands down, absolutely the, the greatest and most important aspect of this story in that particular regard, where is because she is a final girl and she doesn't believe in herself and like yeah. time and time again, she just doesn't believe in herself. And I think that's a different topic, you know, why she feels that way and all that, very real and and whatnot. But the thing that is stands out to me so much and you definitely get that by the end. I mean, it's weird. We're talking about a trilogy here. 
So, but we're only talking about the first book. So <laughs> it's, it's like, I'm already kind of getting, a, getting ahead of everything here, but the idea that we're all final girls or that anyone is, or can be a final girl is just monumentally important. You know, it's just this belief, this mindset and kind of a way of looking at things. And it's just, Jade is one of the best characters and, I don't know how many times I cried throughout this entire trilogy, to be honest. Um, and, you know, and that, that, that thing that I was trying to shy away from there, I'll just say it, it's like trauma is kind of the central point to her story and her history. And that is really what hits me the most about this book. And it's why she doesn't believe in herself or even think that she is the final girl. She is so insistent that she's not the final girl even if or when she is, you know, and that that's yeah. pretty, that hits really hard. And you think about all the, all the reasons why she, she has to, to believe she's not the final girl. She's, she's not white. I mean, she's half white, half native American, right? She's not popular. She's not, um, she's not a, a virgin. We find out in the story. She's not, um, yeah, she's not a, she's not a good student. She's very bright, right? And 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 uh, uh, Mr. Holmes, her teacher, recognizes that in her, and that's one reason why he is a lifeline in her life. But yeah. all these things that she um, is not, like the Laurie Strode character or the Sydney character, uh, all these things that that like the that classic final girl represents, she is not any of those things. And then more than anything, like the final girl is not a girl who's been who's been traumatized, sexually abused in the way that she was. So there's no way she could be the final girl. And that's, yeah, that's the most potent element, I think, of this novel and of the whole trilogy is that it's it's not what you look like. It's not all the things that that have, it's it's maybe not the things that you've done. It's certainly, it's not the things that have been done to you. It, it is what you choose to do, uh, I guess, when when the moment arises that that, you know, you have to make some tough calls and, and be courageous. And she certainly does that. I mean, she, she pulls out all the stops to, well, to try to save people, even, even to their annoyance, uh, especially to the annoyance of, of Sheriff Hardy, where yeah. she's trying to warn people and he wants to put her away in, in, in a jail cell through the Independence Day uh, watch party of Jaws. Cause she's gonna, she's gonna start trouble. She's gonna maybe start a panic. People, are going to get angry, um, but she's yeah. She does everything to try to um, save lives, save the lives of people who, who frankly look down on her and don't understand her. And she is she's an she's an oddball, uh, yeah. but none of that stops her from being a final girl. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's that's really one of the main uh, messages of of the Jade Daniels character. And that brings yeah, and up it, a thought that isn't isn't widely brought into the slasher discourse too, you know, about what is and what isn't a final girl and the actions they take. But you hit on something that is at the core and is so important. It's empathy. She is trying to save the people who have mistreated her, her entire life, essentially. And that wouldn't give, you know, two shits about her, so to speak. Um, And she does it because it's, it's the right thing to do. And, well, and isn't that and, isn't that a funny conundrum? Because she's wanting a slasher cycle to start. Yeah. Finally, the world around her 
will match her inter- her interior world in which she sees, like for whatever reason, you know, we can talk about this as well. This slasher makes sense to her. She's experienced, I think she's experienced some evil that's that's so horrifying that turning to horror is 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 a world in which things actually sort of sort of start to map to her to her own experience and make sense to her. Uh, but she wants the slasher cycle to start. And as soon as bodies start dropping, there's a weird sense of glee, but there's also, running in parallel with that is her sense of duty to find the final girl and prepare her to take on this slasher. So it's not not that she really wants people to die, but finally, like reality, it's not, it's her, the, her interior world is starting to find a match in the external world. And there's kind of a, a coming together, things that make sense to her in, in a way that I think would be psychologically, I guess, relieving to her or fulfilling or, or, or something to her. But yeah, no, she, she jumps right in and, and of course puts her own life in, uh, in grave danger to, um, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, the killer was stopped and that, uh, that people, uh, you know, are, are saved. Well, I have several thoughts. So um, what you just said, Greg, she wants justice and she knows in a slasher cycle how justice happens. She didn't get justice, yeah. but this is an opportunity for her to see justice. Um, going back to her being a final girl or not, the thought I have is two things. First of all, um, doesn't this story kind of in a way challenge who decides who has the qualities of final girl because she's, she's disqualifying herself because she sees extrinsic judgments of, of people telling her who she is versus what her actual intrinsic qualities are. And so she's seeing what people are telling her she is and, and, and what society may perceive her as, as like a disqualification. When we look at her actions and we look at what, you know, her motivations are, motivations is a, is a, a a word that comes up several times in this book. Um, she's got the right qualities. I think she qualifies, but here's a thought I've had too. Can you have a final girl? I think, and I'm going to pre-answer this. Yes. Can you have a final girl who has every right to be the slasher? Oh yeah. Well, that, that's sort of the, I spit on your grave scenario, isn't it? Yeah. It's the, yeah, I don't even like using the word, but it's the the rape revenge type of story, which is I I spit on your grave. So I think within I'll, I'll say you know of course there are, I would have real moral questions in the real world of whether like any any form of violence would be justified even even in the process of getting revenge or is would that be would that mean would that also be justice? You know those those are important moral questions, but within the within the the horror genre and the slasher genre. I think that that um, precedent is very much set. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on in our discussion of my heart is a chainsaw. Um, I don't know how this is going to, I don't know how this topic is going to pan out. It could be the final topic we introduce. It could be quick. I'm not sure, but um, just a general question. What is it about Jade? So early on uh, in interviews about, my heart is a chainsaw when he's talking about when he was writing earlier versions and it wasn't working and they're like, there was like um, different POVs and, and, it, and originally a, an entirely different kind of narrative um, kind of main voice. Um, he got feedback that Jade was important and, and 
So at some point, Jade became kind of the narrative focus all the way through. Um, so even before the book was finished, there was something special about Jade. And the reaction to the series has been, I think, heavily focused around Jade as a character. So what is it about Jade? Like, do you guys have thoughts on like what makes Jade such a compelling person that we that we that we rush to and we and we want to have in our lives and stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, more than anything, I think Jade is just purely relatable. You know, everyone has trauma. Everyone's carrying trauma of some kind around, and a lot of people also have generational trauma on top of their personal trauma. So we can relate to her in that aspect. And the other thing is about her specifically, I mean, anyone who was ever the weirdo, the outsider, the outcast, you know, I, I can personally relate to that a lot, you know, growing up doing those, you know, the younger years, the high school years, cause you know, she was coming out of high school and, so that's another thing we can relate to her on too. And her obsession with horror can also relate to her on that level. Anyone who loves horror, because thankfully we we're, we're climbing out of that or we have finally climbed out of that. And now we're just soaring, soaring through the atmosphere. But <laughs> Seriously. horror was for a long time looked down upon, you know, and it was also reviled and feared even. I mean, I'm pretty common saying all three of us remember satanic panic and yep. that was real and that was national too. Um, so on multiple levels, she's relatable and that makes her that much more real and that closer to everyone's hearts. I mean, it's like we are Jade to a level, you know, like, you know, I, I don't have the trauma that she has and I don't have the generational trauma there, but she is just, she's not this unattainable hero or whatever, you know, she's not the glossy person on the magazine cover. She is, she's one of us. So we feel that much more for her too. And, you know, getting to read through her experience, I imagine it helps other people too, who are feeling similar to how Jade, Jade felt. And that's, such a beautiful, wonderful thing that art can give us too. It can give us perspective. It can give us support and it can even give us courage to move forward in a lot of situations. You know, we could read Jade's journey and identify with that and be like, Oh my God, I feel like I know a little more what to do now, or I have that much more hope. And it's really just a miraculous, beautiful thing. You know, she doesn't believe in herself, right? That's one of the main things about her is that she struggles with her acceptance of herself or belief in herself that she could amount to anything or that she could be the final girl, which in her view of reality is like that. That's kind of the ultimate success is to be the person who could be the final girl. Um, and so yeah, anyone who's ever struggled with uh, their sense of worth, their sense of, uh, of, of self-confidence will definitely f- relate to her. And yet she ends up being the final girl. And I, I wonder if it, if it takes people who've always maybe felt like, or for a long time in their lives have felt like the outsider and says, no, like you, you really, you can be the final girl in your story. Um, and, and I will also say you, you'd mentioned that how relatable she is. 
uh, I think there's a, a degree of believability. Look, there's one little passage in here um, that just stuck out. I was listening to Carrie G's excellent uh, uh, narration of this on the audio book. And something really stuck out to me this time that I read it. Um, this is in the chapter Hell Night. I'm going to read just a, just a tiny bit of this. Um, we know that that her beloved teacher uh, and 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 her academic foil, but her beloved teacher, Mr. Holmes, uh, was in a, an accident. Not really an accident. He was essentially shot out of the sky in his ultralight. He hits the hits the lake. He, we, we figure he's, he's a goner. He's dead. Well, no, he's actually survived, but his looks like he's, he's in a wheelchair, uh, on one of the floats here in, in the, the big final scene where they're watching Jaws. Uh, so he's, he's immobilized. He's in a wheelchair. He's on a float and that wheelchair goes, she sees him go basically over the side of a float and he's in the water somewhere. So she's looking for Mr. Holmes. She wants to be able to save him and she spots it. Uh, and it says, um, again, this is a chapter called Hell Night. Um, she spots him in the water. His head's been opened at his hairline about probably from the uh, prow of the bass boat uh, is spilling dates and history out into the water. His twitching left hand finds her right and Jade pulls him to her, looking around for what she can protect him from. He looks over to her, spits the water from his mouth and smiles, says, Jen, Jennifer, Jade, Jade says back to him, her eyes hot and crying now. I, I, he sputters. His left hand finds the back of her head. He runs his fingers across her stubble. She's shaved her head previously. He runs her, his fingers across her stubble and she pushes back against this touch, shaking her head no, but holding his hand all the same. A spasm passes across him, his head injury, his brain failing. Jade pulls him closer, tries to hold him higher. There's something about that moment where she she doesn't want a man to touch her, to be so intimate as to put his hand on her, on her scalp like that. And yet she won't let go of his hand, even pulls him closer to her. That that sense of wanting not wanting to have control over her body because that has been violated when she was very young. We know we know that part of the story. Um, and yet she she wants also to be close and have that almost like maternal protective in- intimacy with someone, especially someone who's really been like a father figure to her. It's been the teacher and the sheriff who have been that yep. father figure for her. Um, she, she needs that closeness, that, that paternal warmth. And yet she's just got this, this resistance, this pushback. And that's, that is a, a, a dynamic tension within her character. I, I tell you what, no, having known many uh, people who were the victims, many women who were the victims of, of sexual abuse, that that, is, that really rings very true to me. I think people see her act in ways like that, and there's just something that is dead on correct about that, uh, that characteristic uh, of her. So I, I think things like that make her so believable and so real that people can't help but empathize with her and, and, and side with her. She, she's the underdog in this story. And, and, and despite everything, despite her own self and her obsessions and her brokenness, she does overcome and she's going to overcome in a way that's going to get her in trouble. That's going to, as we, as we know later in the second book, you know, we know, I won't, won't say anything. There's a spoiler, but if you have gone on to read, don't fear the reaper, you know, there are repercussions for things that she does to literally save the town 
that end end uh, up uh, getting her in trouble, and yet she does it because it's right. How can you not love this this girl? Um, yeah. The other thing I'll say about what is it about Jade? She's so weird. She's so in so many <laughs> ways. She's so dark. Her obsession with with slashers, and yet she's irrepressible. Um, she's just the the glee, the glee she has as she's literally she's she's on the verge of hypothermia when she goes over to Terra Nova that first time and is talking to uh, shooting uh, shooting glasses and mix, mismatched gloves and cowboy boots the, the three construction guys and she's sitting there freezing to death while trying to explain these uh, rules of the slasher genre she, yeah she's irrepressible and you you really just can't help but love this girl she really yeah. is the evolution she is a final girl but she is so much more than that in that passage that you read she has every every good solid super legitimate reason to shut down or to lash out at everyone and everything but she is radical empathy she could have been sorry she could have been the slasher she could have gone the wrong way she does have the the background to have to have turned her life a very negative direction, and yet she didn't. Sorry, I kind of overran you. Oh question. no, no that that's that plays into what I was saying. That's a good point too. Is because choices come into it too, and she chooses a different path. But she is an example of radical empathy, and that is monumental. That that really there is. That's everything that that passage alone kind of says everything about Jade in the shortest span possible. It's remarkable. It is just this tiny little nugget that says a whole lot about her and about her interior struggle. Um, And I love uh, Jesse. I love what you said about this radical empathy. Uh, Just, just as we were saying a a moment ago, horror really was looked down upon and, and it was part of the, um, well, I mean, you go back even to like the, um, uh, the uh, um, seduction of the innocent uh, 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 with the comics back in the 1950s, the EC comics, the horror comics and stuff, even even from a legislative uh, standpoint where the Senate's having hearings about comic books and Dr. Uh, Wortham, I think is his name, uh, was up there saying comic books are leading kids in the wrong direction. They're leading them into uh, you know bad lives, basically, because it's full of horror and such. Well, now, like, now we look at it and we understand, I think, that Horror is, uh, and I'm quoting uh, Miguel Rodriguez um, on this. Horror is a an empathy building tool. We, oh, we yeah. get that now, but because it came couched in, um, in, in 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 stories of monsters and killers and horrible things that 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 happened to these characters, um, it, it, I think it's really just taken a few decades for public consciousness to be able to say no, like there really can be not even not even just redeeming social value from these stories. The stories are an empathy building tool. And, you know, Joe Hill, I think now famously has said, uh, author Joe Hill, um, you know, horror is not about extreme sadism. It's about extreme empathy. People are starting to get that now. Uh, And yeah, again, that's, that's one of these things that we love so much about Jade is that she, you know, she, she can empathize with people out of her own brokenness. And then that's, that's a beautiful thing. Yep. Uh, one of the things, so, and, and I want to demonstrate how early in the book you really start to latch onto her. 
I was crying on page 26. Uh, wow. wow. She's, um, she's talking to the construction folks. And uh, well, she, it's after it was just her and shooting glasses are sitting in the car and he's, he's walking into territory that she's not comfortable with. And her resistance to vulnerability is just so intense. And so um, the quote, and I'll, I'll try and read it. Uh, she says, I, I'm fine. Jade finally manages to get out, trying to prove it's okay. She can stay. She can talk all night. She did all her slasher homework. She knows every answer. Please just ask. Ask. Yes. yes. And like, you know she's about to lose it. Yeah. I'm crying on page 26 because like you could see how fractured this person is. And like you just want to fix her or or make everything better or take the pain away. 26 pages into the 400 fucking page book. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, he and does she a great job. Someone, she just needs someone to reach out in a way that, that where she can talk to them on some with some kind of uh, common uh, language, some kind of common vocabulary, and it happens to be slasher films. And and some people can kind of fumble their way a little bit into it. Leith at some point gets really good at it. She's actually started mm-hmm. to watch some of these films, and that's a way that later in, in Chainsaw, she and Letha start being able to connect because Letha's actually stopped. Listen to this girl who she thinks has yeah. had terrible trauma in her past. She has. Jade won't admit it. Uh, 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 even among the people who care about her most, she won't admit it at first. But Letha stops and listens. And then she goes and learns a little bit of Jade's language, um, the, the language of the slasher, so she can speak with her, communicate with her, and and, and show compassion that way. And here yeah, and here she is on page 26, trying just, yeah, uh, you know, if someone would just ask, she's got all the answers. If someone would just ask her and people are kind of out of, out of their league with her. Yep. She, she's, she's gone so far into the world of slashers um, as I guess her escape from the trauma that she's experienced um, that, uh, yeah, most people don't know how to communicate with her. And yet there's still people who care about her. They don't know what to do with her. That's a very kind of classic kind of, uh, I guess, Midwestern or Western kind of thing. I, I don't, I don't, don't know what to do with her, but she's ours, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, she's very endearing in her, um, in her vulnerability. Yeah. Um, I want to tag on to that passage that you, uh, read Greg, um, an observation about just the cinematic kind of format that kind of creeps into the way Jones writes this, whether he is trying to or not, but this is a very like specific example Jade lets him float away back into the frothing blood. She screams, or I'm sorry, back into the frothing blood, the screams, the mayhem, all the volume dialing back up for her now. Exactly what would happen in an actual film where like that background noise is like really dialed down for that poignant moment. And then as the, as the moment fades, all of the chaos comes back and he wrote it that way in words. And so, um, there's that cinematic kind of quality to the way that he writes a lot of stuff, but it's like, it's almost a shorthand for getting you to know what he's saying, because that's like 20 words that tell you, Hey, you remember in movies when this happened, that's what's happening right now. It's, it's, I feel like that was a really good uh, example of like the type of thing he does in these books. Yeah. And there's, there's a moment earlier in this, in the, the hell night chapter, when Jade arrives, things are already starting to break loose and she sees a 
we we are aware of the specter of the Lake Witch, the little girl Stacy Graves with her long black hair and her ratty dress, and and that she's supernatural or she's a she's a a ghost or or a witch or something supernatural has is the you know at least that's the story that's the local legend, uh, and in fact. Um, uh, where we're starting to get hints that maybe it's more than just a legend. Uh, but then she shows up there and there's a bunch of kids, a bunch of people dressed up like Stacy Graves. And, and, and it's, it's not like played up a whole lot. Like this is a, a source of a lot of chaos, but there's a moment there where it, when we find eventually see this on film or TV, it's, it's, it's just going to happen. I'm sure of it. Yep. Uh, there's a moment where the director, if they, if they take that scene and look at that a little bit, there's a great moment for the director to set up a bunch of children dressed just like Stacy Graves. And it's like that scene out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Marion's being carried away by the bad guys in a, in a big wicker basket and, and Indy's following after her, and then he turns a corner, and there's suddenly all of these baskets out there. You don't know which one she's in, and he's tearing off lid after lid after lid. It's that kind of moment that I think Stephen, he, did, he doesn't elaborate on a lot, but it's that kind of moment where now the director of that film adaptation has a moment to say, whoa, hold on. Uh, if Stacy Graves is real, if she's here, and if she's killing people, which, which one is it? And I, yeah. I just love that it's it's well, seeded for film for a film adaptation. Yeah. And see, my thought when you were explaining that was it's uh, was it Scream Two or Scream Three, like the opening scene where it's like at the movie of Stab. Scream, yeah, Scream Two. Scream, yeah, Scream Two. Yes. So like, where 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 better place for a killer to show up than in a bunch of than like where everybody's dressed like the killer, like. Yes. And knowing Steven's such a Scream fan, like that's kind of where yeah. my mind went. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's wild. I, I don't I, I don't know that he's talked about if, if he's just been asked, are you going to be, a, are you interested in directing film? I think maybe he has been and he has been asked and maybe um, uh, uh, didn't respond very affirmatively like he would love to do that. But boy, he sure envisions his stories cinematically. Yeah. Um. I, uh, moving on to the next topic, I, I, I pitched this one in our little outline and I explained myself. So I'm going to start with like my thoughts and then I'm going to see what you guys, I'm going to bounce it off of you guys. So, um, the question is, what does Jade get out of her obsession with slashers and my theory? And I think it's pretty true to the story and it's kind of more or less said, so I'm not taking credit for being a genius on this is that it's control. Like the idea of a slasher is that there are specific things that happen in specific order. People have duties or not duties, but like have roles that they play and it's very predictable. Um, And so she knows what to do. She knows how to act. Like there's an understanding of like, as long as X, Y, and Z happens, the outcome will be this. So there's control and not chaos, but also there is a promise of justice in a situation like this. So like, um, I feel like it's attractive to her because like the trauma that she experienced at the hands of people that she should trust more than anybody, um, was a chaotic moment was something that there was no possibility for control. There was no way for her to know what to do, how to act, how to respond. Um, she was let down by the people closest to her in her life. And so finding something to latch onto that has a structure and a system and has an answer and 
and and like a predictable outcome is like her way of being in a world that makes sense and like that she feels that she can navigate and protect herself i guess basically so agree disagree have something to add did i miss something what do you guys think i agree i think it's i think it's a combination of control and justice probably justice first um on there and yeah, but also just why slashers in general. I mean, it's kind of like what I was talking about with the werewolf thing in a bad horror movie earlier where you're, you're going to get something cool. If you're watching a comedy and the jokes aren't landing, then it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> just shot. But, you know, yeah. even in like a, a bad or a low budget horror movie, you're still probably going to get a really cool monster or a really cool set piece or something. You know, you're going to get something in there that makes it worth your time watching, which is completely different from any other genre. Um, at least in film anyway, I know it's weird. We're talking about a book, but I just immediately went to cinema, but yeah, I mean, there's always going to be something you can pull out of a horror movie or out of a slasher that you can't always do out of other other modes of storytelling. Yeah. I think what she kind of gets out of her obsession with slashers, I think the idea of control makes a whole lot of sense there. Um, and it, it, it is a world in which this, the narrative is one that kind of maps to the experience that she's already had as a child where her, you know, her mom's not involved in her life. Her dad is, is abusive. Uh, her dad's friends are hanging out in her home, making lewd comments about her. And she's, she is a kid. Um, you know, she's, I guess, 17, I think in, in, during these events, but like, uh, you know, her, uh, Rexall is there in the house with them, uh, a lot. And he's, and we, you know, he's just a bad person, uh, a real scuzzball. And, and he's making lewd comments about her in front of her and in front of her dad and his dad, her dad is just kind of laughing along, you know, like yep. what a, what a horrific, uh, uh, kind of a home life to grow up in. Um, and I think like with, with horror and, and with really going back to, uh, to Greek tragedy and Shakespeare, um, when you're watching these stories that are about h- horrible things that happen, um, you are able to re-experience the things that have frightened you or that have traumatized you, but you're able to re-experience them, uh, in, 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 in safety, you know, this is a story, uh, and, I think especially is where young children and that division, that, that dividing line between reality and story is a little harder to find at times. Stories really can scare you. Movies really can scare you. Uh, and it becomes, you know, like seeing something really terrifying on screen can feel like a real life and death um, uh, moment to you. I don't experience that now as a, as a grown up. But to a child, maybe that dividing is a little bit harder to find. But but generally, though, with with scary stories, tragic stories, we can re-experience our own trauma at a safe distance. I think that's part of what draws her to slashers. But it does. It maps to her world. Um, you know, like if, think about being a kid and you don't know when your dad is going to hit you, uh, humiliate you or or in her case, sexually abuse you. Um, what else would that emotionally map to but a slasher where people are always looking over their shoulder wondering if someone's going to come up behind them and stab them in the back? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it's finally a world in which 
things kind of, I'm seeing stories that map to my own experience uh, as a traumatized kid. Um, and there's also, I'm sure, something about just being the outsider nature of those sure. films. Having, yeah, having been looked down upon and yet championed by the outsider. And here she is, the outcast of town. And uh, uh, yeah, I think it, it maps to her experience in powerful ways. What do you guys think about uh, the concept was kind of talked about a few times in the book, especially at moments where Jade is kind of second guessing her read of the situation and trying to like see how it fits, see what story she needs to think about to like understand what's going down where it's kind of explained that like, there's like a, in a, in a slasher kind of arc, um, you know, there's the original thing that creates the revenge kind of motivation. Um, but then when the killing gets to a certain point, when the killing gets out of control, the final girl is really a way to govern that action of the slasher and is almost like the counterpoint, like they're equals and like, it's, it's up to her to like kind of cap off that action. And so like, in a way, if you look at a power dynamic, the slasher and the, in the final girl kind of should be equally matched. They're almost like mirror images in a way. So what do you guys think about that? Did you get that from, from the way that Jones was looking at it? I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that makes a whole lot of sense the way you're saying it. Um, and, and you like, no one would look at Laurie Strode and think she's an equal to, uh, you know, Michael Myers. <laughs> uh, and yet, she becomes that equal and she needs to become that to stop exactly what you said. And yet, and yes, Jade does certainly narrate that the, the cycle of cleaning the slate, the universe, whatever sends out a, a monster to clean the slate because some terrible injustices have been done and yeah. that cleaning takes place. And then the final girl has to come in and stop the cycle. But the final girl, well, she's, she's just a girl. She's a high school girl. She's like a nice, soft, kind, good-natured, more likely to be a forgiving type. Well, just like Letha, very virtuous, compassionate, yeah. and kind. The One of the few people, she, she barely knows Jade, and yet she's reaching out to her uh, with compassion and is concerned about her. And, and she has to become steel to take on um, that, uh, that monster and stop this from before it goes from being a kind of revenge cleaning the slate to simply an atrocity. Yeah. The resilience in Jade is astounding because she becomes a thing at the same time, rejecting it or declaring louder than loud that I am not this at the same time. She is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. And I feel like um it's 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 slightly relative. It's it seems like a thing that we've we've kind of been dancing around a little bit too. And something that is so central is that the idea that no one no one gets to decide your worth. No one gets to tell you who, yes. who or what you are. Yeah. And that's a big societal thing too. And Jade doesn't believe in herself because of what others have told her or how others have treated her. But even when she doesn't believe in herself over time, she starts to decide who she is for herself. 
and that transformation is even better than any final girl taking down the the big bad transformation. And and what she transform what she decides ultimately, and especially as you get into the second and third books, what she decides to be is not the homecoming queen. She's not she's going to be the final girl in a maybe a spiritual, moral way, but not in the not in a conventional sense. She's never going to be like well, what what role does her society of Pro- Proof Rock Idaho have for her? It's probably to follow in her mom's footsteps and be the you know the cashier at Family Dollar. That's that's what society expects. She's a high school dropout. I mean, she 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 hasn't. Maybe maybe she'll get her diploma if she can do enough of the uh, you know like extra credit work for Mister Holmes and finally get that that last credit she needs to pass. But yeah, she's essentially a high school dropout. She's um, she's not. She doesn't wear the right clothes. She doesn't, you know, read the right books or watch the right movies. She's not, you know, going to church or whatever. All the things that society would want her to be, to be that, you know, that virtuous person, that that kind of paragon of a young woman. Uh, but she she decides of her on her own to be what she's going to be. Uh, but she but she struggles. Uh, she struggles a lot with. Um, her sense of, I guess, self uh, self worth and her her own uh, like initiative to become what she wants to be. Yeah, there's a couple of different directions I think we could go in. I've got a handful of topics. Um, I don't know if it's too early, but like one of my earlier thoughts, kind of mid outline, is what's the moral of the story? What's our takeaway? What's the bigger picture? I don't know if we should talk about that yet. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, so yet. like, well, but I think yeah. we, well, I, the way I kind of read the book in general is I think we've co- actually covered that in some ways, the, uh, yeah. the you know, no one's going to, no one else, ha- you know, society, uh, um, um, pop, you know, popular opinion doesn't have to determine who you will be. Doesn't, it, you don't have to live by, uh, other people's rules. Um, and, um, anyone can be the final girl. It's not about how you look or how good you are in school or whatever. Um, you know, and I think we have covered that, but if you guys have, uh, that, that would be my takeaway from it, the moral of the story. But if you guys have other thoughts on that, you want to hold on to them. That's certainly fine. I just had a thought too, and this probably isn't maybe right for the episode, but I, I had, it popped in my head and I, I wonder what you two think of it. Um, Jade never thinking she's the final girl and not believing in herself is almost like the flip side of the coin to Buffy Summers not wanting to be the Slayer. Hmm. And have you two watched that whole show by chance? I, I yes. have not. Yeah. I've never okay. watched I'm, it. I'm going to stop it because I don't, I don't it, want to spoil I'm... it because I was totally going to say a major, major spoiler, <laughs> which I related to the welcome. trilogy. <laughs> Every everyone else has seen it except me, I'm sure. So you, I have no problem with you spoiling it. But yeah, I, I, I I'm, I'm that, familiar wait. with it as a show. I've just never watched it. Is the spoiler that Joss Whedon was the big bad the whole time? <laughs> no, but I, that, I've that, heard about that. That, <laughs> that is the truth. But that's not it. It's um <laughs> at the end of the series, what they do is through a spell and other other things like that is. With the, with the Slayer, there's only one. 
Like, a, there's only one Slayer at a time. And when a Slayer dies, a new Slayer comes forth. But what they do at the end is they call forth all Slayers. Huh. So every girl is a Slayer. Like, every girl is the final girl. <laughs> yeah. Like, on Earth? Like, all of them who live? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, huh. I'm I'm probably I'm not remembered so well. It's been so long since I've seen it. I don't think it's every single girl. It's yeah. cer- certain people somehow for whatever reason are born slayers. Some are, huh. some aren't. But everyone who is born as a potential slayer is unlocked, so to speak. Usually, wow. usually you're you're not until the one before you dies. But now they unlocked all of them, so every potential is now there and doing it. And yeah. Oh wow. I, so yeah, I totally see how that connect how that relates yep. here. Yeah. Anyone can be a final girl. Yeah. yeah. So all right, let's take it in a different direction. This isn't something that's necessarily on the um outline that I have prepared, but we talked a lot about Jade and we talked a lot about the serious stuff, but like let's talk about the horror. Let's talk about the kills. Let's talk about like holy shit, Jones knows how to write gory, scary stuff. Yeah. Yes. But like uh I think the first thing I want, like early on in the book, I started taking note of all of like these different things that were like kind of horror foundation that support the story that we get. So like the Lake Witch, Stacy Graves. So like that's that's one of the elements of the book that's like that's a horror convention that that is introduced early on. Ezekiel, the preacher. And like um, drown town, like the preacher who like you know his whole congregation drowned and like weirdly consecrated the, the old lake and everything. And like so, Ezekiel, there's a lot of potential with that that in a horror construct. Um, there's Camp Blood. There's the stuff that happened at Camp Blood. Um, there's also wild animals all around that can, especially bears, that bears. can yeah. kill at any time. Uh, it's, yeah. it's actually it is it, they're on the verge of a national forest forest which yep. is you know essentially wilderness uh and and uh, i'm sure like elk they're large animals you know mm-hmm. uh, there's a there are just natural dangers or or you know the dangers of having a lake that can freeze over uh mm-hmm. and you know, getting trapped under ice or whatever there's a lot of danger all around and isolation yep. and, i mean yeah you have you you can only take the water across the water to get to terra nova <laughs> yeah it's built yeah, yeah, in yeah. isolation which Talk about red flags in a horror story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He he built in a lot of potential early on, and there was just so much room to explore. Um, but I fucking love, and it's very memorable, the first blood, like that initial kill where it's like these two travelers who are not local. And what was the transgression that got them killed? They they just they were naked. <laughs> They they, they, took went, a, they got rid of their clothes and went out essentially they took, skinny dipping. They took the town boat. They, they stole the town canoe. That's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was. They yeah. took the town boat, but then they also did the frisky, sexy stuff. But yeah. that was enough. Uh, and they were doing stuff when they weren't like you know like when it's a quiet time and like obviously like kind of a theme of like Stacy Graves is like being disturbed from just trying to rest and like be with her mom. So like. That was fucking awesome, though, like uh, uh, of of having read the book when it first came out and not till now. That was this thing that kind of like was really vivid in my mind was like that first kill and that I don't know if you guys translated it, but when Sven 
is getting killed and he says something in like Dutch or whatever. Did yeah, you translate yeah. that? I, I didn't. It says, what's wrong with her mouth? That's yeah. what Sven oh, says. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause of the jaw thing. Yeah. Like he was yeah. telling, oh, us that's telling us that it was Stacy that, that attacked him. Like he told us without telling us in the first few yeah. pages of the book. Yeah. And like, Oh, so good. So like, that was like very, that was very cool. But oh, do you guys crazy. have any thoughts on like the general horror of the book and the kills and the scariness and, and all that? Beyond its top notch, um. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is an immense variety. It really, like, I think about um, uh, Theo Mondragon in the outfit that you know where he's got the um, you know the the breathing apparatus, the you know uh, and and, and, a, yeah, and a nail gun. Yeah, yeah, he's got a nail gun. He's walking around shooting people with a nail gun. Um, uh, that's there's just so many elements. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot and. Of course, a lot of things come together in that Hell Knight chapter. Uh, Rob, I know you'd commented like, you know, most of these chapters are like 20, 30 pages long. And then you get to those last couple of chapters and they're like suddenly like 50 plus pages. Like he is drawing together so many threads, especially in the final big attack where you've got this great, uh, wonderful set piece with they're all watching Jaws on a floating movie screen and everyone's out on their floats and their little boats and they're decorating, you know, they're, they're dressed up. It's like Halloween in, in, in the summer, you know, instead of Christmas in July, it's Halloween in July, essentially. Yep. Um, and, and what a great lot of people in a wonderful scene in which to, uh, you know, uh, unleash chaos. And, and, and so all of these different elements from Theomon dragon and, even like her, her, her dad, Tab Daniels, and and other characters you've seen, good people, really rotten, awful people, um, running around, and then find the, the the one just super potent menace, this little little girl who got separated from her mom and not cared for by by the community, and had to eat you know, out of, you know in the back alleys like a cat eating out of people's trash. It's a, it's a terribly tragic uh, scene that you've got uh, there with Stacy Graves. Um, yeah. There's just so many, so many moments of um, uh, so many elements of violence and, 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 and the various kills. It's, it's honestly, it's a lot to keep up with. You really kind of have to pay attention to it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I could be, um, I'm probably just reading a whole lot into this, you know, and overcomplicating it because, you know, like, you know, like the Agatha Christie character, Hercule Perot, who's always, you know, accused of making things complicated when they don't need to be. My brain kind of does that, too. But with that um, that opening kill, too, they're from the Netherlands, which is the Dutch. And there was the Dutch East Trading Company, and they're in Indian mm-hmm. Lake. So them being Dutch and being in Indian Lake alone oh. might be enough of a transgression to, wow! To kill them, <laughs> yeah. Wow! <laughs> like just great, like great uh, cat. Oh, that's interesting. I had not. Wow. I definitely had not thought of that. But wow. it's yeah. probably not even that at all. Because I mean, it doesn't even necessarily have to be anything. It's just a cool scene too. But yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like, all right, like how complex can I build this up to? Maybe or like yeah. just make yeah. make a yeah. labyrinth in my brain of all the things that are going around. And like like Greg was talking about you know, the whole jaws on the water thing, which alone is a great idea, but that is one of the greatest all time, greatest set pieces in literature 
ever. And it is built for the screen. It is so yeah. built for the screen. It's built for the screen and built for a screen on the water too. To watch yep. an adaptation of that on the water, which is another thing that I've always loved. I've always had this fascination with movies within movies or plays within yep. plays. And it couldn't be more perfect than the idea of watching an adaptation of this on the water somewhere. Mm-hmm. Not to be too off topic, but um, the fact that like the last third of this book is basically like a shot for shot remake of um, the end of Jaws. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, Raw Shark Text by Stephen Hall. Um, yeah, the, the end of it uh, is basically like the big water, the big showdown with the shark at the end <laughs> in, a, in like a in like a different kind of format. But like there is some resonance to that story where it was like one of those things we'd never fucking seen before and it created terror in a way that we weren't expecting and i had a i had a pool in my backyard i had a 27 foot pool it was nothing a shark could ever even hope to fit in and i tell you as a kid if i was alone in that pool i was convinced that there was a shark in there wow yes Yes, it it works. It works on your mind in in yep. ways that we can't uh, we can't always uh, you know repress. Yep. Um, but yes, like yeah, um, such a good such a good setting for like introducing kind of a new cycle of violence as well. Like it has been because it's almost like Jaws was scary and it created this kind of like universal fear of of the thing and and but it's been around so long that now it's almost like a joke. It's like, we're doing this because it's a kitschy fun thing to do. What better place to just reintroduce terror than a place where like it's, it's become safe. Like that's really cool. Yes. Yes. You know, another kill that, uh, that always caught my attention was the, uh, the yacht scene when people start dying and there's like a gunshot blast right over through a door, right over Jade's head. And there's um, the, the, the moment when you see uh, Tiara Mondragon, uh, uh, you know, Theo's new wife uh, just kind of pedaling her feet through the air as she's been pitched off the top of the yacht. And then she like comes down on one of these, uh, uh, you know, columns that are holding up the the, the floating dock and yep. just impales herself on it. Um, but the pinwheel, I think he describes it as a pinwheeling uh, her legs. Oh, it's just awful. And just, yeah, what, yep. what ends up happening with those people. And in some cases, I think it's, just, it's hard to even make out, you know, what piece it belongs to what person. And you know, it's just awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a handful of just kind of random quotes that I think kind of illustrate uh, like different good things about the book. Do you guys have anything highlighted? I know Greg, you had a few and you already did one of yours, but like there's certain things that like, and uh, we, we, we could build conversation around it. It might just be a quick thing to acknowledge, but like I have little things like, uh, I feel like Jones has a really good way of like shorthanding and understanding of what he's, he's describing. Like he, he knows how to tap into an existing image in your head in a way that I think is really effective. And I don't think a lot of authors can do this, but like uh, earlier in the book, um, he says, she's already running like a rag doll down the pier, that kind of running. That's all untied boots that you have to lift your chin for because you know, you're going so fast. Yeah. Everybody yeah. feels that 
anybody who reads that knows exactly what that looks like and feels like he can just like shortcut into your brain in a way that I think is really remarkable. And like, I feel like that's one of the examples of like where he knows how to find something that's a universal experience to get you to see what he's seeing. Yes. Yeah. It's really kind of a, a, a poetic gift to have and he uh, deploys it um, constantly. It's, it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. It is really, um, yeah, it's impressive. It's incredible too. And a lot of, a lot of that stuff reminds me of um, filmmaker John Sayles. John Sayles can also, he also like time and time again does the same thing and also brings this, this empathy and this understanding to the worlds that he's writing about, but he never eschews the, the horrors of the worlds that his characters are living in or the world around us in real life. And, you know, like Lone Star, um, that film in particular, and also Limbo, I feel like they, they do a lot of the same lifting that, that Steven does in his books. And it's just really hits the core of the human experience. And it's sometimes a rarity too, to, to get that, at least in this day and age, um, you know, everything's moving so fast and it's, it's gone in a blip, you know, it's the, we're, we're beyond Warhol's 15 minutes of fame. It's like, we're now living in the 15 seconds of fame and there's no time to stop and ponder and appreciate, or even just kind of be for that moment too. And it's, it's an incredible thing that he's really touching on there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, um, you think about memorable quotes, and this is the one that I've probably seen more than any other out of My Heart is a Chainsaw. And it's the scene where um, there's kind of an intervention staged with, uh, yep. you know, Sheriff Hardy and Mr. Holmes and, and Letha uh, approach Jade and uh, and they, they want to kind of confront her with the possibility that her acting out in their view is, is related to uh, having been abused by her dad. And during this, this moment is really a moment where she's denying that that ever happened and she's resisting their, uh, their understandably, I get it. I get it. It's extremely awkward. It's, it, she doesn't want to go back and address the pain that she's been through. So she resists and they're like, I mean, it, is it possible that you were abused by your dad and that's why you're into these dark things, into these slashers, and and and, and you know, your your all your uh, Hardy says all your uh, gothic stuff, the way you dress, your attitude, the trouble you're always. That's just me, Jade tells him, blowing her smoke out now as underline. Horror's not a symptom; it's a love affair. And, and yeah. while she's spending that time saying something that's kind of untrue, which is that, no, no, I wasn't abused by my dad. I just love horror. Okay. And, and yeah, that line there, horror is not a symptom. It's a love affair has, uh, I think that's v- a very true thing for her uh, and for a whole lot of people that has resonated. That one line has yeah. resonated with, uh, with more, more readers of this book than probably any other line. Um, so yeah, that, that's always a, a, a favorite quote there. I've, I've got something that stood out for me, this, this, this reading that, and I think my mind 
doesn't necessarily like rank the poignancy of different things as much as sometimes it looks for the effectiveness of things. And so like, um, yeah, that line definitely hit me too, Greg, but like, I also tag the weirdest shit. And so like this, this may seem random, but, um, she's thinking about like the death of someone and like how it's almost like it's an analysis of like people need to die in a slasher because that's what happens. But like, she has this kind of empathy moment and it's, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, it sucks that it had to hurt so bad and it was pretty scary and they really had other plans and their families are going to be sad and who's going to feed their dog. And that moment where she, where she thinks who's going to feed their dog, that tells you everything right there. Like it, it says what the future without this person is. And so like, just reading who's going to feed their dog, it puts a dog in an empty room in silence and it shows you the aftermath, the impact of, of this bad thing that's happening in a way that's like really effective to me. And, and I love it when there's things like that, where like, it's just, there's a resonance that's such, so great off of such a small kind of compact thought. And it makes it, Oh, sorry, Greg, go ahead. There's nothing. There's nothing florid about that language. It's very simple, very plain language, right, right. and yet it encapsulates a view that, like a, a a pretty young kid, could hear those words and say, "Oh, geez, yeah, what about the dog?" And it communicates to your inner child or whatever. It communicates very powerfully, yep. uh, de- deceptively simple. Yeah. It yeah. makes it that much more cinematic, too, because it's clips, it's edits, it's very Eisenstein. You know, the idea that you show a person and then you show a bowl of food and then you show that person again and we infer the meaning of it. And yep. we're, we are seeing everything that she's talking about. We're seeing that dog. We're seeing an empty dog dish and yep. everything together. And I'm very radically, like, just in an instant turning wheels here quickly because there was another thing I wanted to touch on, and it's – um. It's hardy above all things too. And it's also fathers. Stephen writes great fathers. He writes the best fathers. And a lot, like, I mean, it's why we cry reading all of Stephen's books too. It's really, it's love. And we get that a lot in there. We've got, we've got Dodd and it came from Del Rio. And we've even got William Colton Hughes, which it, oh, yeah, yeah, the love is still there. The father is still there. We've got that. And we've yeah. got fathers. and We've got Hardy in this book. And as much as, like, Rob, you touched on it earlier, it's like when Jade finally surfaced, that changed everything and it formed the story. And because it wasn't, you know, it was originally Lake Access only and it wasn't kind of working, you know. But then Jade came along and that made it. But Hardy came along too. Yeah. And there and the moment I met Hardy, so to speak, I knew he was gonna die. And I knew it was gonna rip my freaking heart out too when he died. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. so so yeah, that the fathers, they're they're always there. And it's it's all of them too. Parents. Parents are all mothers and fathers are are there in in all these stories and it really, it all comes down to love. I mean, we, we were talking about radical empathy earlier. We have radical love too. I mean, love and empathy are the real keys here. Yeah. 
Dude, you know, and, and that makes me think, I'm going to tangent a little bit because like Jesse, we were hanging out. You came out to visit a few years ago. We just randomly watched Donnie Darko, which was a movie that I had watched and enjoyed, but I never really like, it never really fully clicked for me. And you said something so simple, like right before or right after we watched that movie. And it was just like, yeah, it's a movie about love or something like that. So simple. And then the moment I looked at it from that perspective and I saw that everything Donnie did was because he loved his family. I was like, everything makes sense. Everything makes sense. And I can't tell you how many books, stories, movies that are so fucked up. And I'm like, it's a love story. Also, this happens. Um, I like that. I feel also, like- this happens. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it's true. And like, yeah, there's like such a a theme of of love. Yeah. Yeah, to grasp to on this. Sorry, yeah, Greg. People I know think the story is about cannibalism. Well, it's a okay. The movie is a cannibal movie, but no, really, <laughs> it's about a relationship between two people or whatever. Yeah, I mean that that's well, part of the power of of storytelling, and especially in the horror about, genre. He's talking about Hannibal now. That's what we're. <laughs> well, I think it was um, uh, bones and all is what I'm thinking of there. But know, uh, I'm sure about. it applies to more than one piece of art. Um. You, you had something you were going to go with there, Greg? Yeah. Um, thinking about mothers and fathers. One thing that I I think is an outcome of, of Jade's experience, the fact that it, she is a survivor, it's not just because she's alive at the end of the story. Uh, let me read. I'm going to read the very end of this. A couple of paragraphs here. Uh, so Jade is now, she survived the, you know, the Lake Witch and Theo Mondragon. She ha- was caught taking that machete and put into it through her dad's neck, though she didn't realize it was him. She was whatever. And now that's gone, been caught on video. She she basically knows that she's, she's going to be going to prison uh, if she even, you know, lives, Surprise. you know, any longer. Yeah. So her, her life's going downhill from here. So she just says, I'm, I'm done with it. And she goes over to the other side uh, uh, of the lake and the, the, the forest is on fire. She thinks she can maybe save um, the day by getting up to into the dam. Well, while she's up there on the dam, she sees a, a little bear cub followed by mama bear coming down toward the control room. And then she sees um, why they're running, not just running away from the fire, but uh, Jade looks behind them down the line of the dam and they weren't running from the fire they were running from what's running from the fire. The trash bear, a big ragged boar, his fur scorched and smoking, his face scarred from claws and teeth, or maybe fights with dumpsters, it doesn't matter. What does is that just like the hamsters, Jade knows, everybody in Proof Rock knows, Papa Bears eat Baby Bear every chance they get. They're easy pickings and tasty besides. Jade stands, shaking her head. No, no, please. At the end of the dam, the air swirls clear enough for her to make out this trash bear standing, carving the air with his massive claws, his roar filling every iota of space. And then, then what Jade's always known to be a lie what she would never believe, what all the nature shows have been lying to her about, what starts her heart like the chainsaw it is. The mama bear tucks her cub up under herself, 
steps forward over it and roars even louder than the trash bear, her lips quivering from it, her rage saliva misting out before her, and Jade doesn't speak bear, but she gets this all the same. Yeah. Um, Dude, you're going to make me cry here. (laughs) Again. Again. I I was thinking... Like, how did he get through that without just, like, the voice cracking because Jesus Christ? It's because because we're leaning to this last paragraph here. This mother's saying that if this bad man wants her baby, then he's going to have to come through her to get it. And Jade has to look up to the sky to keep her eyes from spilling. And for a moment, the smoke parts enough for a grainy line of sunlight to filter through, find the palm of her hand when she reaches up to try to hold this feeling for as long as she can. I think survivorship for her is her realizing even even nature is showing her a mom should protect her daughter from even from her ravenous father. Jade, what you experienced that's not normal. It's not right. Even sa- even nature, as savage as it is, you could, you can, you should be able to expect your mama to step up and protect you. And that didn't happen for her. But she, what she's holding on to with everything she's got as long as she can, and she's like, she's, she's here, out here in the dam with smoke everywhere. She's in her underwear now. She's she's hungry. She's hydrated. And what she's holding on to, and she's cold, and what she's holding on to with everything she's got is this feeling that what happened to her was wrong. It never should have happened. It was tragic. It was an injustice. If she yeah. can hold on to that, then she there's a, a sense in which there's a rightness to the world that she hasn't experienced, but that she can believe in. And, that, and it was the first time I read that and I saw that image, it was, yeah, I got shivers from it um, oh my God, yeah. because there's this, yeah, this maternal instinct that, that even, even these savage bears have that was missing from her life and she should have had it. And she's holding on to that. Like there is something that's right in the world, even though she did not experience her herself. Um, I think to me, yeah, again, I think that's what survivorship means to her. Not just that she's alive, but she can recognize that what happened to her was was injustice and it should have been otherwise. And there's a there's a moral rightness to the universe in seeing, I guess, kind of a mother nature stepping in to show her something. And even the fact that there's this one stream of light coming down yeah. in her palm. She's it's her her road to Damascus experience was delivered by um, uh, the, the savage nature. Uh, and I think that that connection with nature becomes more and more important the longer, the further we go into this trilogy. Yeah. And I thought it was like, um, one of the things that illustrates that throughout the book, the mother kind of part, her understanding of mothers is how like every time Jade thinks about a mother, whether it's her mother or like a motherly situation is in like a negative, like a mother would never, a mother wouldn't. And you know, it's because her mother. Yeah. um, Abandoned her. Yeah. Failed abandoned her. Didn't stop the thing from happening. And, 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 and so like, there's, it's just such a inverse of colors, like an inversion of colors, like the mother to her is, and you know, is it is it is a negative 
but like not like a like it, it just doesn't fit like the visual of a mother is like what they don't do or what they shouldn't do because her mother failed her in that respect and and it's very obvious um like the whole time so yeah and and i think again no spoilers for don't don't fear the reaper but um her mom Kim comes into the picture very powerfully yeah. in Reaper, and you, we get to explore her character more and, and get to understand kind of what. And there's a beautiful chapter that just kind of paints a picture of what her life is like and her and her experience when she on the, the rare occasion when she bumps into Jade, what it's like, and it's 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 painful, but there's something really powerful about seeing it from her point of view and then kind of following with with you know her thread there uh how it kind of culminates in in reaper it's a very powerful moment yeah i'm going to pause to acknowledge that of the three of us two of us have already read the angel of indian lake and i'm not one of them (laughs) (laughs) so you guys know the full picture Um, yeah just want to acknowledge that there's not bitterness in my tone i I promise (laughs) um but uh, uh, I just have a couple of random things. I'm just going to throw out a couple of random things um, that I thought were really, cause like there's so, there's so much complexity to a Jones story, but I don't want to undervalue the fact that some things are just fucking cool or badass. Um, yes. So uh, like really quick little lines, like uh, uh, she's 17 and it's cold 30 in the dead, dead morning. Yeah, that's, I've been there before. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. Again, relatable. We've all been seventeen, and it's cold, thirty in the dead, dead morning. Um, random thoughts to herself, like, uh, let's see, when the bodies are accumulating, there's always room for one more, right? Mm, Just a random mm. thought. I love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought here's 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 something that that has been just tickling my brain, and I don't know if it's just me wanting the story to have a flaw or if there's something to this. So I'm going to, I'm going to float this at you guys and I'm going to see what you think. Um, the founders at one point, and for anybody, hopefully you've read this, the founders are the the Terra Nova people who are, are starting that new community. And um, at the graduation ceremony, they announced that they're doing, they're going to pay for college for every student of the high school starting in the class after Jade's. And of course, Jade's reaction is bitterness. Like, of course, this is going to happen after I no longer qualify. Here's my problem with that. And I don't know if you guys thought about this or not. Maybe this is like where Jesse's talking about, like, I just think too like complicated about things. She didn't graduate. Technically, she could finish her high school in the following year and on a technicality qualify to have college paid for her. That's not the way that she looks at it. She looks at it as... Oh, this is another thing that is not something that I I can get. This is another like thing that's keeping me down in life. And I always thought that like she technically could finish school next year, be a graduate of next year and qualify to get free college. Do you guys where do you does it matter? Am I thinking too deeply on this one? Cuz like that was a kink in the story where I was like this could be a good thing if she like looked at it the right way. I don't think you're it, thinking it, too complicated about it. I think it it says a lot about her mindset, but I'm probably thinking too much about it now because that to me digs into generational trauma 
and whatnot. Mm. And like, Mm -hmm. she's half indigenous, native American, Indian, whatever, you know, one's preferred term is. And why should, why would she qualify or trust that? Why wouldn't she be scammed out of it? Even if she did technically qualify, um, they'd never give that to us like that kind of a yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And when she is trying to graduate, she's trying to do extra credit to, to get this final credit she needs from, from Mr. Holmes. So maybe she is expecting that she will graduate by completing the assignment during the summer uh, after she's done her community service and whatever else she has to do. So um, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. I, I, I think maybe, I suppose she could just at that point not complete it and then have yeah. to go back to school for her senior year if it would be allowed. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, yeah, you hadn't, hadn't really thought about that. For some reason, that was one thing that was just burrowing in my brain and I couldn't let it go <laughs> because like everything is so tight about this story. And this is the one thing where I'm like, this is ambiguous. And so, yeah. Is it that everyone starting with the next class who graduates gets a free college or is it with everyone who's, who is a freshman starting the next year in well, they four said, years when they start graduating? No. Cause they said class of the year okay. after. Yeah. 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 So, so like that's, that's what introduced the ambiguity for me, but again, yeah. Could be thinking too hard. That's the that's the downside to like reading in preparation for a deep dive. Is like you really deep dive in your brain, your brain, your brain about does, stuff. Does Jade see herself as college material? I mean, would she have gone on to college? I know she wants to kind of get out of proof rock. College would be a way to do that, but um, I, I just don't happen to recall. Was college really kind of on her radar? In the very beginning of the book, in in a kind of brief thought about escaping proof rock college is the thing that will get you out. And I don't know if she, the only thing is I don't remember if she's thinking about it in the context of how other people are escaping or as an option for herself, but she does think that way. I just don't remember if it's something that she applies to herself or not. And probably not because like, she's got this kind of like, image of herself as like everybody thinks I'm going to fail. So that's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. 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 Um, I have a couple other notes. First of all, the Bible being a slasher, I thought was really interesting. Um, Remind me that reference. I just don't happen to remember that reference. um, It was about, because it was like specifically like uh, she was analyzing and thinking about revenge. And so like when she's thinking about revenge, she's thinking about, um, I think the sending of plagues and I am, I am no person. I'm not a person who's very familiar with the Bible, but like it was through the lens of vengeance and how God or whatever had sent, had, had been vengeful against people. And so yeah. that, for yeah. that reason, technically the Bible would qualify as a slasher. And I was like, hmm. I never would have thought of that, but yeah. um, it's, yeah. it's interesting that that got, that got consideration. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely some, uh, you know, very disturbing. It's it's funny, and I'm a lifelong churchgoer myself, and I, I you know, it's funny to have, um, you know, members of the of the Christian religious community who are so opposed to like their children watching a horror movie or reading a horror book. I'm like, 
you have actually read our holy scriptures, right? <laughs> there's a whole lot of time. There's, a, there's a, a great ghost story with King Saul and the Witch of Endor. There's there are the ten plagues. There are some horrific yeah. scenes where where there is sexual abuse, and there are you know, of course, obviously miracles. Lot's wife turns to salt. Um, yeah. An- Anias and Sapphira aren't completely honest about some land dealings and they do- drop dead in the presence of the, the early followers of Christ, uh, etc. There's like a whole lot of horrific moments. So please don't let your kids read the Bible <laughs> if you're really that worried about horror, my my fellow churchgoers. Yeah, and I and I knew that you, uh, if I, I don't know how active you are in religion now, but I knew that you you were a more religious person, so I was interested to hear what you had to, to say. Yeah, about that. I'm, I'm in church every Sunday, you know, and that's uh, uh, it's definitely still part of my life. And 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 it's yeah, I, I totally when I hear um when I hear people like, like Laird Barron, for example, talk about the the Old Testament God, people like to sometimes think that the, you know God was pretty different in the Old Testament and the new one. He's he's a lot, you know, he seems to be nicer. Or if you think of Jesus as representing him in some way. You know, J- Jesus certainly is kind to the downtrodden and stuff. Oh, but in the you know the 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 Hebrew scriptures, the First Testament or Old Testament, uh, yeah, he's he's really he's really quite mean or or whatever. I think I don't. I, I certainly wouldn't put it that way myself. But I I get it. Like this is there are, are absolutely some uh, some terrible consequences that people go through. Uh, because of their because of their decisions, it's also just like a really really chaotic time. So, pl- like uh, moments in the Book of Judges, for example, where there's um, just yeah really really horrific things going on. So I uh, yeah I kind of I, I can see that, especially I suppose with the ten plagues. That's a cycle right there, yeah. um, and and it is therefore a real specific purpose, which is this Pharaoh is keeping the Hebrew people slaves. Uh, in Egypt, and so yeah, you 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 picked on the wrong people, according to the, to these texts. And God sends one plague after another, and they they just get basically increasingly worse until the last one is to to take the firstborn child of all the Egyptian people. You know, so um, so I, I suppose that when you think about like the slasher cycle, well, there's a cycle of re- of vengeance or justice. Uh, right, right. there that, that God, uh, brings down on the Egyptian people. And, you know, like, yeah, you know, of course I grew up reading that, those stories and like, yay, yay for the Hebrew people. You know what? People today in Egypt might really look at that differently. Uh, cause the Egyptians are made out to be j- just yeah. the, the slave hold, the slave holders, the bad guys there. So yeah, there's some real complexity in, in those stories as we look at them, you know, today from a, especially from a more globalized, uh, standpoint, I guess. Yeah. I think the, the, the note I want to end on that I had for myself was like toward the end of the book, Jade has a moment where um, she starts to think that she's just seeing all of the events that are going on um, as a slasher so that she basically can like have purpose in a way. Like she's like, it's a kind of a moment of self doubt where she's like, um, she's just seeing what she wants to see. Like she's, she's questioning whether, She's like, what's actually happening is because of all of her, like the knowledge she has, or if she's just seeing the events and putting them into like the story that she wants. And I feel like that's very powerful because like, um, the thing about her character the whole time was like that there was the trauma and that was like, there was her way of coping with stuff. And like, she's, she's 
she's got all of her issues and like she's not really open to questioning why she does things the way she does because like then that would make her think about what caused her to act that way and all that and she really avoids that so she's having this moment of self-doubt at the end where she's like am i just thinking like this because i need this to be this way and i thought that that was like a great moment for her because it's like an opportunity to change and it and it's an opening of of like her her mind a little bit and it's not long before that whole bear on the on the dam part um so like yeah there was just that that really hit me this time around that like after everything that she went through and she kind of got what she wanted and she it didn't turn out the way that she thought it was going to and and obviously she had to confront things that she wasn't ready to with like her father and stuff and like saying like I wasn't for you and, and, and fucking crazy shit like that. She starts yeah. to think, have I just been needing this to be this way the whole time? And that's not really what was going on. And I thought that was a, a really powerful moment for like kind of her changing as a person or, or growing or, or maybe getting some kind of closure on some of that stuff. You know, she's so young to have that kind of thought. That's a very mature thought. In fact, going back to like uh, religious traditions and people growing up within a religious tradition, um, you know, the, uh, a phrase that's been bandied about a lot these days, I know certainly within Christian communities, is the idea of deconstruction, deconstructing one's religious background, but essentially asking questions like, you know, why do I believe the things I believe? I Maybe I my parents raised me going to church or raised me going to the temple, raised me going to this, to the, uh, to the mosque. I'm, I'm, you know, I got here because this is part of a tradition passed down through many generations, but why do I still believe the things I believe? Maybe I need to reassess my beliefs. Like that deconstruction is the, at least from my perspective, that's going on with people in their thirties, forties and fifties and later. And here she's, on the verge of 18 and she's thinking that kind of deconstruction of her narrative, her, in this case, a slasher narrative. That is a, uh, that's a profound and, and mature step for her to take. And especially knowing that like the slasher narrative, the slasher kind of cycle and that, that structure that creates some kind of, as, as we mentioned earlier, some kind of control over the world and belief that there is a control, that there is justice, that there is something, that she, some kind of permanence that she can count on. For her to be willing to, to question that when she's needed desperately something to hold on, that to hold on to that makes sense of what she's experienced is a, uh, is a terribly mature and profound for someone of her age. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Jesse, any thoughts? I think Greg said it brilliantly there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to follow that up. So yeah. I'll just, uh, <laughs> I, I talk so much. I'm sorry. Oh, no, not at all. Like that. No, that was great. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Mic drop on that yeah. one. Then. Um, Mic drop. So, yeah, totally. Totally. Let's let's round out the discussion then by um, uh, just kind of like, are there any final thoughts that you have about, because this is the first in a trilogy. And so we're kind of talking about an incomplete story by just focusing on this book. But like um, either do you have fit, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna put it to you this way: either give us some finishing thoughts about the story, or maybe talk about like what the book's impact on you has been, whichever you think is more kind of appropriate for you. Jesse, you want to start off? Um, man, I'm kind of tongue tied on this one, at least on this, this first book or this, this first episode, since we're dealing with a trilogy, um, it's a lot of it really comes down to Jade being just a monumental hero. Um, overall, I mean, the things she endured and choosing to go down the path she did, she very could have easily gone down a different road. And I feel like she had every reason to go down that different road, but she didn't, she chose otherwise. And she really chose empathy and love and something good. And, you know, you can't ignore the past, but, she chose to not let it rule the entire rest of her life. And it is that's beyond final girl material right there to me. You know, I I think about, um, you know, in the, in the ancient times, uh, the times surrounding Greek mythology, for example, the hero is the very strong, the very cunning, the one who leads the armies, etc. Um, and then you get a story like like this, and it, the hero is the least likely person, the person who doesn't even believe in herself, who doesn't think she can be the hero. It's such a a, a, a very human and very, I guess, humanistic reversal of uh of kind of the um uh the the values and the you know the virtues that that uh we embraced uh, a few thousand years ago you know and, and also you know this is the f- the first book in a trilogy and and we will see jade change and and be able to reflect back on herself at this age when she's 17 she's she's going forward she'll be a different person um, and I think her ability to reflect on herself is one of the really cool things about the trilogy and seeing how she transforms across all three stories. I mean, that's a this is a heck of a character arc. She learns to believe in herself when very few people around her will believe in her. She learns to believe that she she can be what she deeply desires to be, even though she doesn't think she looks like that person doesn't perform or achieve like that person but but and and yeah her she's got a big heart and that heart is a chainsaw it's it's not what most people would look for um and that is why it's such a a fresh and astonishing uh hero to have in your story and she'll she'll be able to reflect back on that as well i think that's part of the the most fascinating aspect of the trilogy her heart is a chainsaw well said (laughs) (laughs) thank you yes absolutely Uh, before i give a final thought something occurred to me and this just might be like duh rob we thought of this and like we didn't have to have a conversation about it but like um stacy graves could jade a jade could have gone the route of stacy graves easily b she could identify with and be on stacy's side because of like their kind of parallel experiences, but she still chooses to stop her. And I think that there's something to that, um, that like 
why? Like there, like you know what I'm saying. You could explore the motivation of like why, when you can see your experience played out almost like like she even has this like moment where she through Jade we see the history of Stacy Graves from like the very beginning up to how it got to now in the lake, and like she doesn't even understand why she knows it, but she knows it. She so identifies with Stacy and still opposes her. I think that there's something to that. And I think that that was a really cool part of the whole thing too. Um, because Jade's Jade and like, you know, um, I think that's what it comes down to. But as far as like my overall take on this book, it's fucking like, I don't know if he was trying to be ambitious. I don't know if he was trying to like, just change the whole idea of slashers, but Jesus fucking Christ, man. And, and, and I've seen this with Jones in, in, in so many other examples where, he takes an idea and he elevates it. Um, yes. Not in like an elevated horror kind of way, which is like a dirty term and everything. Yeah. But like he takes an idea. So I, I mentioned Zombie Bake Off over two hours ago now. Um, he does stuff with zombies that no one had ever done before. Um, and, and you can look at so many of his books and see examples of him taking the idea of a thing. Werewolves. Yes. Mongrels and werewolves. Yes. Taking the idea of a thing. And evolving it into something, I don't want to say better, but different, exciting, his own, whatever. Um, and like, and, and these are these are well worn monsters, creatures, tropes, genres, etc. That people are very familiar with. Like yeah. people who aren't readers at all have seen the movies, we're very familiar with, and yet he pulls fresh material reframes these things in in ways that are very fresh mongrels a great example let's take the werewolf mythos and reframe them from the the back steps of a double wide trailer in in texas and the american south it's brilliant and it totally and he brings out details of the uh physiology of werewolves and how that transformation that shifting happens and and why they're you know it's just it's just wild (laughs) <laughs> the in he is endlessly imaginative. I think when when someday in the future he passes away, they need to take his brain and put it in a jar and study it because it it seems to work differently than most people's. Well, I, and I'm going to tell you what I think it is, and I could be wrong, and I don't think maybe we could ever have an answer. Maybe he'll be like, "You nailed it." It's curiosity. Yes, like yes, he's not writing a book to write an awesome book. He's writing a fucking story because he's curious about what what is this? He's trying to explore and understand something. Yeah. There and I feel like when you approach it from that perspective, you're not trying to impress people or you're not trying to outdo people or one up people. All you're trying to do is is have a new understanding. And I think that's kind of one of the keys to why he's so good at doing that kind of stuff is yeah. because like like uh I interviewed him I I interviewed him on paper for uh uh, Lisa, my scars, which I totally forgot that I even did, but like for crime spree magazine, and I have a copy laying around somewhere. Um, and, and like, like there was a part where he was acknowledging like, uh, Greg, have you read it? Lisa, yes. my scars? It's the most disturbing book I have ever read. Yeah. So uh, he just acknowledges there's like in, in the book, there's like a piece of like wallpaper that's curling up. And like, uh, like the whole, like one of the things that was really, bugging him was like what's behind the paper like like that kind of thing and like he was kind of acknowledging that like there was a fear and a, and a curiosity that like really pushed him to like write and um 
and I feel like that's kind of the key, one of the keys to uh, why his stories end up doing what they do. All right, so we have been talking about we have been on the call for two and over two and a half hours, and and more than two hours is making it into the final episode. So we need to wrap up this deep dive. Um, and I think that Greg's got a great way to take us out. It has nothing to do with the story, but it really has to do with Steven as a person and why he makes us cry so much. So um, uh, once Greg uh, reads this, we're done. And we hope you come back for our, our discussion about Don't Fear the Reapers. So take it away, Greg. So uh, everyone who's who's read his books knows his acknowledgments are themselves works of art. And they generally end with um, a, a thanks to his wife, Nancy. Uh, and this one is, and I've read a lot of these dedications and acknowledgments and, and they're, they're powerful, but this one, he, he describes um, her, her watching all these scary movies with him so that he wouldn't watch them alone and be terrified by them. Uh, and he ends by saying, thank you, Nancy, for keeping me safe all those nights. I think the only time I haven't been wrong was when I said to you that maybe we could make a life together and grow old holding each other's hands. My heart is a chainsaw, yes, but you're the one who starts it. <laughs>